Occasionally, after a service, we like to open up our time for questions from the congregation. We do this for a couple reasons. First, there's always more to be shared. There's always deeper understandings. There's always broader explanations. And the very nature of a 30 or 40 minute talk means that there's a lot that is just left on the floor of the editing room. And perhaps some of what's down there is really pertinent and should be voiced. And questions help to bring that forward. Another reason we do this is because oftentimes the questions that are asked by the congregation help push us further into realms that we may not have considered or a nuance that we might have missed. We believe the congregation has insight and wisdom that can be tremendously helpful in broadening our understanding of the text or of the message. And we're not only thrilled to allow others to participate, we think it's of great value for the people of the congregation to contribute. It actually helps the communal voice to be heard. So we're sharing this Q&A on the podcast because we want to ensure that all of our sparkers, both near and far, feel welcomed and invited to participate in this conversation. This is part of who we are, and we hope that all of you will join us in enriching our teachings through your questions and your contributions. So in good spark form, here is the Q&A session after Omer's talk, Mars Hill. question was, uh, it's, it seems like most of our Bibles reflect the older texts that we were talking about. And the question is, are there places today that still rely only on the Western text? And so our, most of our Bibles that we have, they, they reflect a strategy where you actually don't rely on one text tradition itself, that you're actually using a combination of what we think of are the best manuscripts. So usually that means older. So there's a pre- strong preference for older texts. And because of that, uh, most most of the like major Bible translations that we will all have access to will rely on the older text and and not the Western one, and um, it, you know, and and most of the Bibles that get circulated and used throughout the world reflect those those standard editions that that we carry around in our pockets or on our phones. There's one translation in Romans 16. Um, there's this name of a, of a woman there named Junia. And in some of our translations, even today, even some of the newer right. translations, they're still translating that name Junius with an S to make that name a male name rather than a feminine name because Junia is a prominent apostle listed in Romans 16. So it's, it's so fun for me to teach Bible to some people and say, okay, I want you to take your pen and cross this out of your Bible because the S doesn't belong there. So, right. um, yeah, yeah. And I was saying that's, it's especially weird that that change happens given that Junius, the male form of that name does not exist in the ancient world yeah. so far as we can see it. And then, uh, because of that, when, uh, when, you know, when some scholars will concede that Junia is the right name, then they start changing the idea that she wasn't a noteworthy apostle. She was noteworthy among the apostles exactly. or to the apostles. It's crazy. I have many thoughts on this. That's right. Yeah, they <laughs> talked about her. She, that's why she was prominent. Our daughter, one of our daughters is named Junia. So I've, I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> and it was a, that was an effortful decision on our part. Okay. So my question is this. Um, thank you so much, by the way. What, as, as your training in social psychology... What really causes the shift for many of us who that have experienced uh, away from intellectualism, the, whether that be fear or what's going on in our limbic system? What are Because uh, Mark Knoll is right. I mean, there was a tradition, uh, even during the Billy Graham era, where thoughtful, uh, even scientifically engaged Christianity was a norm, or at least was an accepted norm. And, right. the, and Mark Knoll is writing about how that shift is... So I want to know what has caused that, 
out. And maybe that might be an answer to what continues to perpetuate sure. the culture amongst many evangelical uh, congregations about anti-intellectual. Sure, yeah. So that, that's, a, that's a great question. I think from, like, if I were to answer from a social psychological perspective, which is, that's my background, there, there's two major things. Uh, one is cognitive dissonance and the other one is identity formation. So for cognitive dissonance first, there's just this, this reality that entertaining conflicting thoughts on a subject, it's very hard for all of us to do. It actually creates just an aversive feeling in us. Even if we aren't aware that it creates an aversive feeling in us, there's all sorts of research that shows that it's there. And what, what often happens with intellectual inquiry is, well, of course, it's you take the things that you know and you realize that you have to unlearn some of these things that were, were um, you know, meaningfully held by you. And for a lot of people, that can be super stressful. And it's tied to the fact that there are so many things that we believe that, are, that, that help us kind of mark out who we are in the world. And, um, and you'll see, too, like that, that um, you know, certain issues, uh, especially like areas of intellectual inquiry, like the theory of evolution. They don't have to be, you know, areas of inquiry that are problematic for Christians, but culturally it works out that it is. There are, there are a lot of circles of, of uh, Christians in America where, where you cannot entertain the possibility that the theory of evolution is true because of who you are and your community, because, um, because this is what a good evangelical Christian believes. And so you have to, you have to overcome all of those boundaries. And I think that that will persist. Those things like identity formation or your beliefs being a way to shape your identity and cognitive dissonance, those things will, will always be true. And, um, and uh, there's research that shows that Western cultures especially don't tolerate cognitive dissonance as well as other cultures do. So it's just, there's just this idea that you got to know what you know. And, uh, and if you, you know, you're knowing something that conflicts with what you know, you've got to figure it out. You've got to resolve that. Otherwise, you're going to have a problem. Whereas the, the road to growing for a lot of us comes with, for periods of time, just entertaining that dissonance and, and living with it and wrestling with it. Yeah, so the question is, um, you know, has, has the, the anti-intellectualism with, within uh, American Christianity or evangelicalism um, changed over time? Because it seems like it's, it's, or sometimes seems like it's worse now than it is back then. Um, I don't know. The, the evidence is, is mixed on that. I think that one of the things that, as a social scientist, I always try to avoid is that when I don't like something that's happening is to think that it's worse now than it was in the past. And, um, and so there's, there's mixed evidence to say that, that maybe, um, you know, maybe Christians in some circles in this country are, are even more hostile to academia or higher learning than they were back then. What, what we do know for sure is that the litmus test issues, like the, the litmus test areas of inquiry do change over time. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't have been, uh, research shows that it wouldn't have been just like 20 or 30 years ago that, for example, climate change or the research surrounding climate change would have been uh, a polarizing issue or a litmus test issue for whether you're truly a conservative Christian or not. But it has become that way. And there are times throughout church history where, where the theory of evolution has been perceived as more uh, like an, as an area of inquiry, more of an enemy to the faith than at other times. Um, so it's hard to say. Definitely, though, the trends that we're talking about, just the, the anti-intellectualism that can occur, uh, it's alive and well uh, at, at the very least. Sure.
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, yeah, is this, is this uh, anti-intellectualism? Is it one of those things that's perpetuated or, or exacerbated by, by media and other forces or something that's just driven by, by our own, you know, just the way people are, um, like just uh, arrogance or, or, you know, love of certainty and things like that? Uh, you can uh, guess my answer is yes to both. And there's, uh, there's research that, that shows that, that both are occurring. So that sociologist that I mentioned, Brad Wright, the, the, even in the subtitle itself of that book, he points out that what he's tackling are myths and convictions and ideas that are held by both media, that are perpetuated by media, but also by, by Christians and just Americans in general. On all fronts, you know, that it can be that way. Um, you know, a, a good example is the, I'll, I'll just give the theory of evolution as, as an example since it, it gets a lot of media attention. So a lot of times the way media talk about the issue is that there are two sides to it. There are people who believe in the theory of evolution and don't believe in God, and then the reverse. And for the sake of, because of business demands and hot, like uh, norms on how to tell a journalistic story, uh, the enormous middle ground of many of us who see no conflict between the two don't get a lot of airtime. So the people who view those stories end up, what do they end up thinking? That being a Christian means being against the theory of evolution. And if I find the theory of evolution compelling, then maybe my group that I should identify with is people who don't believe in God. I was just going to mention that, you know, when the nation was first founded, when people were first coming here, you know, colonizers, they set up seminaries right away. So Harvard, Yale, all these places, they were places of, of they weren't our current academic Primarily, like they were, they were places set up for the study of text, and there's Hebrew on the insignia. So we have a strong branch of Christianity that at least started some like a couple hundred years ago. It was very much focused post Enlightenment on reading and study and knowledge of it. Now it's not to say that everybody did that, but we do have that as part of our what what we are. Our history is longer than the last twenty years. Right, that's right, and um, and I think we we take for granted that so many of our premier institutions in this country, um, they, they welcomed and held prominent places for religious inquiry. Amazing. Uh, I've got a ton more questions, but we'll leave it uh, there. Um, I, I hope for all of you who are here, you know this is absolutely one of the central pieces that we do here, is um, having shared conversation around these issues so uh, that there is a space for all sorts of different people from all sorts of different intellectual backgrounds to have these kinds of conversations. So, Omer, again, thank you as always. Thank we you, really sir. appreciate you.